Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Poldoyan. Guys, I know we do a lot of wine-centric episodes, but this week we're going to hop into the back of the house and talk to Nick Wong, the chef de cuisine of UB Preserve. Nick grew up in California studying nutritional science at UC Berkeley before moving to New York where he worked at Momofuku Sambar and Gramercy Tavern. But after cooking stints in New York and SF, he came to Houston. So to me, that's really exciting. I wanted to get his perspective on the Houston culinary scene. And anyone that knows Houston gastronomy decently well uh, knows about the magic of Houston Chinatown. And it just so happened that when Nick and I connected last week, he had just returned from there, having stocked up on some ingredients for the restaurant. Here's Nick describing that trip. Did you work today? No, we're, we're closed on Mondays right now. So you can still work when your restaurant's closed. I, I know that but game. Funny thing, I did pick up a bunch of deliveries for the restaurant today. Oh, yeah. Uh, drove to AF Wholesale, which is like in the old Chinatown. So what do you mean by the old Chinatown? Because maybe I'm not familiar. I When I think of Chinatown, I think of Bel Air, like out west. Is there a different Chinatown that, that you're referring to? So the one I'm thinking of, I, I'm not exactly sure because obviously I'm not from Houston, but Apparently, there used to be like a Chinatown closer, like around like Edo-ish area. So the place I go oh, okay. to pick up stuff is off of like Bastrop or like uh, Emancipation. Okay, it's, yeah. There's like three or four different Asian import-export spots where I get like all my Asian sundries. There's like May Food that does uh, a bunch of fresh produce, AF Wholesale and MT Trading that need to get case of soy sauce and a few bags of rice or a case of fish sauce or stuff like that. Um, and those are and things it, that you can't necessarily just get from like Euromid or Cisco. Like, Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, you know, we have like the preserved duck eggs and that's definitely not a Cisco <laughs> or a Benny Keith or a Euromid situation. So. so that's what you were doing earlier. Yeah. I drive out there probably once a week, write them out a check. It's old school and hell yeah. Load up. And, um, and then for other stuff, I, you know, drive out to 99 Ranch or H Mart for something more specific, or I just don't mm-hmm. need a whole case of it, you know? That's wild. So you'll actually go to H Mart to buy some of the, like, yeah. I don't know, ingredients that you might need. Yeah, like sliced rice cakes from H Mart or Szechuan peppercorns from 99 Ranch, things like that. Nice. I guess we should introduce you, right? You are Nick Wong. You are the chef de cuisine, right? Is that your proper yeah. title? Chef de cuisine at UB Preserve. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference between a chef de cuisine versus, like, I don't know. An executive chef is like the chef coming in occasionally, scoping out the situation. But like chef de cuisine is the person that's there on a daily basis making shit happen, right? Is that kind of how you would describe it? Yeah. You know, you're you're boots on the ground. You're kind of the person there and you're kind of the driving creative force, I think, for most restaurants. If you're the CDC at, at a spot, the onus of the responsibility of menu creation falls on you. Yeah. And then you take care of like day-to-day stuff scheduling orders that that sort of thing and try to delegate stuff to your sous chefs and yeah. if you have if you have one so you're working service most nights right yes what's your role normally during service are you the one in the window calling calling out tickets or what what's your general function are you working one particular spot on the line like what's the vibe in a ideal environment when i'm fully staffed um <laughs> fully staffed what's that that's that's not a thing yeah uh fully staffed i'm normally just expediting just calling out tickets sending food um trying to create a flow for the kitchen and you know mm-hmm. we have been pretty understaffed since i think july of last year really and i just ended up getting fully staffed uh, mid february but otherwise, I, I've been, you know, working Does fully staffed and- mean anything different in a pandemic world when your occupancy might be less than what it typically is? Like, does it matter? Like, even if you're at 25 or 50% capacity, do you still need as many people working in the kitchen regardless of how many people are actually dining? Like, there's still just that many positions that need to get filled? So during pandemic, when we were... Um, reduced capacity and we're still reduced capacity currently we're not we're not fully open just for the safety of our staff you're not turning into clay then you're not turning into one of the nightclubs here in houston that's on definitely um, not the mayor's like uh the wall of shame the wall of shame <laughs> right yeah yeah that's just wild that's crazy yeah 
So for the for the past year during pandemic, when we've been understaffed and we still kind of needed to run the restaurant, I've been down basically one cook, and my sous chef has been filling in on stations for the almost the entirety of uh, us being reopened. And in normal times, I would split expediting or prep uh, shifts with our sous chef Aiden. But since we've been so understaffed, it just becomes. I come in the morning and prep and then just work all the way through to the end of service and expedite so that Aiden can focus on working a station and helping out with prep whenever he can. So trying to find good people at a time when restaurants are you're spread in so many different directions, right? Like there's so many things to worry about that on top of that, trying to find a good person that you can train up and work a position. I mean, where were you going to find people? Like, was it just posting on social media? Is it through Indeed? Like, what have you had the most success with? I've posted that twice. I posted when I think last November on Poach, and we got a lot of applicants. And we were kind of looking at the numbers, and I kind of made the executive decision to be, we're just going to remain understaffed for a little bit longer because I can't make those numbers work if we bring on another cook. And in terms of labor costs. In right? terms of labor costs. And I, you know, I only, we have a very tiny kitchen. So we were running just with three line cooks out of four that we would need to make it happen. And I don't want to slash any of my current staff's hours. You know, yeah. it's already really tough for them. And bringing one other person on would mean that I would have to lose hours somewhere else. So I made the decision just, we're just going to run skeleton crew until things start to normalize and things start to, we see an upward trend. It, of you know covers and reservations and we finally hit that point about february it's wild and you guys i mean in terms of a restaurant right ub preserve you know has been doing a lot of different events and pivoted in a lot of different directions over the course of the past 12 months you guys were doing like themed brunches you were doing like late night um on thursdays right like staying yeah. open till one in the morning yeah so we are wrapping up our late night series actually this Thursday, that was also one of those things that's kind of born out of the pandemic. Uh, when we first started it, bars were still not open up yet. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just our staff, we had nowhere to go after service. And so we were like, it'd be kind of nice if a restaurant was open and served booze and some cheap food. And like, why can't we be that for our industry right now? So we did that. You had all different crazy themes going over the course of that period of time, right? You were doing lobster rolls one week, you were doing like Korean barbecue the next week. Of all of them, because you've done so many, which ones kind of stand out to you? Actually, this this last month of our late night menus, I gave my cooks all homework to develop a menu. Professor and, Wong, come <laughs> give, give everybody homework assignments. Look at this. Dr. Wong is my brother and my dad. I'm the, I'm the <laughs> black sheep. I told them, okay, we're gonna do a late night menu and you have to have five items. Here's your parameters. Nothing can be over $20. It has to be executable with a lean staff. And it has to make sense for, you know, late night. We're not doing super composed dishes. It's all served in paper boats and disposable plateware and things like that. So all my cooks really knocked out of the park. One of my cooks, Carla, did a Spanish tapas-themed one. Uh, my cook, Easton, did a Thai-inspired one. <laughs> one of my cooks, Chris, wanted to do barbecue. And I was like, hmm... Texas barbecue is not something that I really want to touch. I'm <laughs> from California and New York, and I don't think we'd really do well. And he was very persistent. And I was like, okay, how about we compromise? Why don't we take a look at barbecue or live fire things inspired like globally? And maybe we can do something with that. So, you know, we kind of took a look at yakitori and pinchotan grills from Japan. Did you guys snag one of those? Did you get a pinchotan grill? Yeah. So one fifth, uh, when it was in its Mediterranean iteration, was using those exclusively for all their skewered meats and things like that. So we were able to just borrow one. Oh, wow. Which was awesome. And then my sous chef, Aiden, also did a takeover and kind of explored his San Antonio Tex-Mex roots, which is awesome because I have no idea about... Yeah, I was going to say, has a guy that's lived in New York, San Francisco, did a little stint in Norway, right? Like, yeah. what is your relationship to Tex-Mex? My only experience with Tex-Mex before moving here was uh, going to Chevy's or Chili's. All right. And it was this kind of thing. I didn't even know that one Tex-Mex had regionality. So like San Antonio Tex-Mex is different than Houston Tex-Mex, different than Austin Tex-Mex. And so I, that's been really interesting to see. Um, I'm more used to my Cali-Mex or NorCal kind of style, like mission style burritos and street tacos and things like that. So it's all been kind of new. It's a lot of cheese. 
I can't get over how much cheese in Tex-Mex food. That's wild stuff. Actually, the last um, the last one we did was with Katie, our general manager. She ended up getting behind the line and cooking because she wanted to do something. I was like, I mean, if you want to throw down, <laughs> she's like, I brought my knife, I threw on an apron, so she she went at it. So hell yeah! And yeah. now you're moving into crawfish, right? Yeah, crawfish uh, every Tuesday. So we've been only open Wednesday through Sunday. And now that we've kind of seen a positive trend in terms of reservations, things like that, I was like, okay, let's try opening back up to six days. And I know last year, everybody kind of lost out in crawfish season due to lockdowns. And I thought, you know, it'd be really nice if we could do that. You know, I was going to say, like, do you remember your first time having crawfish? Was it here in Houston? Was it like a previous trip when you were just visiting the Gulf? Um, so my very first experience with the crawfish boil was actually with Chris Shepard. When I was thinking about moving here, Chris flew me out for a week just to check out the city. He didn't tell anybody why I was here. He just wanted me to see the city, see the food, see the cultures, see the people. And I literally landed at uh, at the airport, asked him, where am I going? And he's like, oh, gave me this, this address. I put an Uber, walked up, and it's in the middle of a crawfish boil. So I'm there with my luggage and my suitcase and they're doing a photo shoot for his cookbook. You know, they've got newspaper out. They got the boilers outside. And I was like, this is an amazing way to welcome mm-hmm. me to Houston. I really lucked out being able to walk in from the airport into a crawfish boil. So that was awesome. That's also rough, though, because then you're going to eat a bunch of crawfish. And when you eat crawfish, like your entire body smells like crawfish, your hands. And now here you are, like handling your luggage. You haven't even unpacked <laughs> yet. I don't know. It's just one of those things that I feel like you need to take a shower after you eat it, you know? Small price to pay. <laughs> small price to pay so do you feel like you have a good appreciation for what makes a good crawfish boil at this point like you feel comfortable enough at this point that you can make it yourself at your restaurant yeah i i think i have a pretty good grasp on the crawfish boil situation so the one that we're doing actually is not a traditional one because we don't really do anything traditional at the restaurant anyways mm-hmm. um we're doing a szechuan style one which i know is i don't think that's a thing but i i like it i like the flavors and I thought it'd be something kind of unique to, you know, kind of add to the conversation about crawfish boils. So does that mean you're just like throwing a bunch of like peppercorns? Like you're just throwing a bunch of like Szechuan peppercorns into the broth? So we're doing the boil fairly conventionally with just, you know, some Creole seasoning in the water and some other aromatics cooking Mm -hmm. the crawfish. And then we're making the Szechuan butter on the side that's got a lot of roasted garlic, a lot of dried chilies, obviously a lot of Szechuan peppercorns. And then... After it comes out of the boil, we just toss it in the Szechuan butter. And then we're also throwing in your regular potatoes, your corn, your mushrooms. But then we're also putting in Chinese sausage. All right. Which is, you know, I was like, andouille Chinese sausage, not really the same. But, you know, <laughs> we're, just, we're going off book anyway, so why not? Yeah. We're also throwing in some sliced rice cakes, which we did this iteration of crawfish for our first year anniversary with the same setup. And the rice cakes were the big thing because they're literally just like a sponge more so than your mushroom, more you so than your potato. All of that. And it's just, everyone lost their mind over it. And <laughs> so it was like, okay, we'll bring those back. I've only ever had crawfish myself like three or four times. It's just, it feels like so much work to like eat crawfish. And I know you kind of get in the zone. It's almost like getting a runner's high, right? Where you're just yeah. like in the zone, ripping off the tails, eating them, just going back and forth. But to me, it's always just like so much work to like, get all that out. I mean, in terms of crustaceans, like where do you rank crawfish? Is it above below crab? Where does lobster fit into this situation? Like shrimp, like where are we at in this? In terms of labor and what I'm willing to do to work for the enjoyment, pure enjoyment, pure enjoyment. I'm going to have to go crab is top. I just really like crab. It is a little bit more work. Do you think that's growing up in California? You just like growing up having that dungeness? Yeah, that's my default is dungeness. I didn't even know that other crabs would exist until I moved to the East Coast. And I was like, what are these tiny blue crabs that don't meet? You got to work so hard for this. Dungeness, that's the way to go. So, I mean, if that's your, if that's what you grew up with, I mean, that's a hard, that's a hard one to get over. But I, I also find it funny, the, the crawfish boil, though, I don't really go so much for the crawfish. It's the social aspect, the you don't go to a crawfish boil necessarily by yourself and just eat crawfish by yourself. You're like, oh, hey, get the gang together. We're going to have some beers and chill out and relax. So it's not really about the crawfish. It's just an excuse for you to get together and just share this experience together. So The communal elements, yeah. right? 
100%. So like, I know that UB Preserve is really big into working with like local farmers. Where does one source crawfish from? Like, is there like a crawfish monger of sorts? Is there like a purveyor of these crustaceans that you source these things from? So we've been working with our purveyors that are kind of coming out of Louisiana in that kind of area. Last year before lockdown, we were using a local guy named Captain Sin. I'm not actually sure what his real name is. but No, I he, love that he's the captain. Yeah, just, just Captain Sin. And he would just pull up um, with his truck and just, you know, offload some sacks. He provides a lot for Turkey Lake Hut for their really? college boys and stuff like that. So that was cool to get it from him. And then obviously we went into lockdown and I'm not, I haven't kept up and I'm not sure if he's still in business or what his situation is. But yeah, right now we're just getting it from our uh, purveyors that do a little bit more business in Louisiana have trucks coming out from there. So like LA seafood or uh, inland seafood or fruge. 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 Yeah. Is that like with a U with an umlaut on top? Like fruge? F R U G E. Okay. Word. I don't know. I mean, you guys work with so much like fresh produce. Were you affected at all by the freeze? Did you notice that like local produce, you know, that the farms here in town, were they like totally fucked over by that shitty weather we had last month? Yeah. So a few, and it was so heartbreaking to see because restaurants are starting to get busy again. We started to put in like substantial orders and start, you know, kicking them some business. Um, the people we get our lettuce from Verde Greens, they're actually not that far from the city. They're, you know, within 30 minutes lost all their lettuces and they've been there. They just texted me this morning saying we're back in business. So, you know, from the freeze until now they've lost all of their crops and had Jesus. to plant and redo all that stuff. Um, we have a mushroom guy. His name, his name is Michael, but we used to get like our uh, blue oyster mushrooms from him, King trumpets and all that stuff. And he lost all his stuff in the freeze and he's still probably about three weeks out in trumpets and, Farm and Forage, uh, Jordan Ranch. He lost some stuff too. And we were able to buy, you know, baby bok choy or whatever random stuff that was able to make it through the frost. And we just bought all this stuff. And I think he's back on his feet now. And he's he's actually providing a lot of stuff to Squabble and to Littlefoot right now. So that's great that he's been able to make that happen. And um, one of our, our biggest losses was actually not due to the frost was not branch so they've been working with chris for a very long time and basically they would just show up to the back door of old school underbelly with a bunch of stuff and chris would be like i'll take the whole thing and you know that was the vibe of the restaurant and like the cooks would do their thing with it and when we first opened back up that was our main kind of cool stuff produce purveyor and the owners they're um kind of like an elderly couple. And then when COVID happened, they had to shut everything down. They lost all their farm hands, mm. lost their farm manager, and it was just too dangerous for them to do any sort of business. So they've just been back down to substance farming. So we've lost them. And that was a huge blow for us because, you know, we would kind of roll with the seasons. We, were, we would work with them and say, hey, like we're interested in this for the spring. Can you plant this? Can you plant some extra of this eggplant, not this eggplant? Can you get us these habanada peppers and – these cool habaneros. Can you try growing this weird thing for us? And they would be like, cool, we'll give it a shot. And that's wild. That's super cool. They've just been gone. So that was, that was a little sad for us, Hmm. but uh, we're trying to get back in the game. Um, One of my cooks, actually, his family is starting a farm and they brought us some produce uh, a month ago and we got really excited. I looked at my sous chef and I was like, wow, I'm just super excited to see. We haven't had somebody come to our door with fresh produce that they want us to check out in such a long time that we kind of got like choked up almost about it. <laughs> like, oh that's my cool. gosh, that's something to look forward to, like spring and tomatoes hopefully soon. But that's a, such a cool thing that like one of my cooks, his family can provide the produce for the restaurant that he works at that he can use. So that's, that's a really cool story. That's a so, whole nother dimension of farm to table. Yeah. Yeah, that's super cool. Yeah, that's three dimensional chess right there. That's cool. So, I mean, that was your first visit to Houston was when Chris flew you out and you came to the crawfish boil. That was like around St. Patrick's Day or whatever of 2018, right? Did you have any preconceived notions at that point about the city of Houston, like your impressions of Texas, like having grown up in SF and working in New York? So actually, my very first time in Houston was in 2017. Uh, When I left New York, I decided to do a cross-country road trip 
back home to California. I'd never been anywhere in the South or in the middle of the country, just fly back and forth, just fly back and forth. So they're called flyover states for a reason, baby. Yep. Um, so when I kind of mapped out my trip, I made sure Houston was on the map and I'd already met Chris earlier. He'd done a special guest chef dinner with us at Sambar in New York. So I reached out to him. I said, Hey, I'm going to be in Houston for a few days. You have any recommendations or suggestions? And he rolled out the red carpet and, the other thing was this was maybe two months after Harvey had hit. And so my first question was, can I even come to the city? Is it totally demolished? Should I not come through? Is it okay? And he's, he said, listen, Houston's a big city. It's, we're doing okay right now. We're getting back on our feet. So, you know, it's not this wasteland that you see on the news, you know, yeah, we're putting stuff back together. So that was actually my first experience in Houston. Um, before that, I, this doesn't sound terrible, but my my impression of Houston, but actually just Texas, is guns and cowboys. That's yeah. I think that's true. <laughs> look. I'm not from here either, and that's definitely what I thought before I got relocated here. So when I lived in Dallas, that felt to me far more southern and far more like stereotypically Texas. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, there's that one month out of the year when the rodeo is going on and then Houston feels like Texas, but otherwise like you go into a coffee shop, you hear three different languages being spoken, you know, you're in the inner loop, right. And you go to the Manil, you go to the MFA, like you can hang out in Montrose and it doesn't feel at all like Texas yeah, or at he, least that stereotype of Texas. Yeah. I've, I've learned since being here that Houston is not Texas. Houston is Houston and yeah. Texas is Texas, which is <laughs> great. I did have a culture shock thing though when I first moved here. Yeah. The whole kind of Southern hospitality. And I know it's not super Houston, Southern, whatever, but you know, I'm just so used to being in New York where don't make eye contact, don't look at anyone, just walk with your head down, headphones in. And <laughs> my first few months here, I was just walking around on the street or like going to a coffee shop and random strangers would say hello to me. And I would just kind of side eye them, just thinking, <laughs> like, what do you want? What are you selling me, sir? I don't want it. I don't know you. You know, yeah, and then I started to use oh, people are just nice and warm and welcoming here, which is new and like genuine about it, you know. So, well, also, you were working for like the mayor of Houston, right? I mean, you're yeah. working for Chris Shepard, right? This gentleman who's like big personality, known throughout the city, the kind of guy that like goes into a spot and like knows everybody's names, kissing hands, shaking babies, doing the yep. whole nine yards, right? Yep. I mean, I don't know. I mean, was that in any way challenging, like coming in to like run a restaurant called UB Preserve to be the chef de cuisine of this place that is so associated with, you were talking earlier about like, what did you call it? Like OG or old school UB? Yeah. Yeah. Like the original OG underbelly. The OG underbelly. You know, yeah. Had its, had its own ethos and all this other stuff. And UB Preserve is somewhat the spiritual successor to that. That first week that I was here in Houston, when Ed, Chris had flown me out to check out the city, one of the last things I asked him before accepting the job was, and I literally like raised my hand. There's no one else there. Just, <laughs> I was like, I have a question. <laughs> you're, you're Mr. Houston. What do you want with an outsider to run your spiritual successor to your Houston restaurant? And his answer was that, you know, from talking to me in our conversations about food, he's said, I think you have a good understanding of the cultures that kind of exist here. And, I think that you could do it justice. And I, I think also after having worked and had so many conversations with Chris, I think he kind of saw this wave about to happen of a bunch of folks moving into the city from the coasts. And he saw me as maybe being one of the first people to come here and do that. And I think what he wanted was an updated version of Underbelly where it's seeing Houston through the eyes of these people migrating in from different places instead of just being, you know, Houston through Houstonian's eyes. Now it's a Houston through someone else's eyes, through an outsider's eyes, which is, you know, more, more and more people keep moving here. And I, I wonder about that sometimes, right? Because like people always talk about the need to go to New York, that that's where you go to make it right. That if you can work in a kitchen in New York, then you can go anywhere. And it's a city that's filled with people that have moved from other parts of the country to go work in those kitchens. And I think what's so fascinating about these like secondary markets, if you want to call them that, 
right? Whether it's a market like Houston or any of these places, right? You have these chefs that are either burnt out paying a fuck ton of money for rent in a major market like New York or where it's just like such a big pool that it's hard to get noticed, right? For whatever reason. And you have people moving to these other places. Does in any way that take away from what made those secondary markets special? I wonder if like now because of both the internet and the fact that people are just moving a lot more than they used to, to these other places, are we losing any of that like regional specificity to the food? How do you how do you look at it having lived in all those places? For me, I think that Houston is going to be a much more interesting place to work right now because that stuff that you kind of said about the like the struggle of working in those larger markets, as much as you think like the creativity and that's like the hub of these things, the hardcore reality of it is, you know, if you're not shooting for three Michelin stars at one end or you know you're just trying to figure out some way to franchise a you know burger concept or burrito joint that you can make money on this closing window of this mid-range place where you can take risks where you can try something new because you can't afford to fail in those larger markets and coming to a place like Houston it feels like there's so much opportunity or like literally there's just so much physical space even yeah that you can take a risk and try to do something quirky and unique and you still have the dining public that is sophisticated enough and still just welcoming enough to, you know, accept that kind of thing. But you don't have these other factors of, you know, demolishing you on rent or fighting for talent because it's so difficult and just like the harsh realities of living in those other places you can kind of come here and take a breath and, you know, kind of center yourself and say like, I'm going to do the thing that I want to do here. Whereas in those other places, I have to do the thing that keeps me alive here. I can thrive. And there I'm just trying to survive and hang on, you know, is there a dish or some element of the UB preserve meal or menu that you feel like you could have only made here that you wouldn't have been able to make in SF or New York? I think that dish is probably the Vietnamese fajitas that we do. Hmm. And that kind of stemmed from a problem that I solved that no one else had a problem with. So when <laughs> I first moved here and we were talking opening menu and things like that, I wanted to do some sort of Tex-Mexy thing. And for me, the Tex-Mex iconic thing, aside from queso, is the fajitas. But everywhere I would go to get fajitas that, you know, went to Papacitos, Lupe, and what have you, you can get a half pound of filet and it comes out in the sizzling tray and the first bite might be great, but then you get to the, you wait five minutes and the whole thing is just overcooked. Like it's just science. You can't <laughs> send out a piece of medium rare steak on a 500 degree cast iron pan and expect it to be the same. So in my head, I'm just like, how do I solve this problem that no one else has a problem with? So I was like, well, if I do a slow cook short rib, the first bite's going to be as good as the last because it's meant to be overcooked. You know, it's a braising cut of meat, but you know, the technique that we do to it, it still remains tender. So I don't really care if it overcooks. If you can, you can sit on that plate for 20 minutes, it'll be fine. But then, you know, just seeing like the Vietnamese influence all over the city, like why not try to even just lighten that dish up? So instead of, you know, the tortillas, we got lettuce wraps and these banh hoi noodles with the rice noodles, you know, instead of queso, maybe it's just like some nook mum. And then you just, wrap the whole thing up it still comes out on a sizzling tray you still get the sizzle you know but that's all the people really want right exactly yeah. you everybody wants to walk out with that tray of fajitas and hear it sizzling and smell it and you know i think that that is something that's so uniquely houston from all the points of like it being a tex-mex influence it being a vietnamese influence and people understanding intuitively that this is of this place and it it could it's delicious and it would work other places, but here is like where it feels like it should have been th born, thought of, created. No, for sure. Would you have been able to wear that crawfish costume that 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 I see no. popping up all over TikTok and uh, Instagram? Would you be able to do that in a city like New York? Um, I I could, but I don't know that um, <laughs> my employers would have so much uh, leniency with me for posting that on social media. It was a little bit more, uh, a little bit more strict with the social media policies. I'm sure. <laughs> no, that's wild. I mean, did you when you moved here? I mean, obviously, you come, you work as a 
CDC at a very well-regarded restaurant. You're spending a lot of time at work, but did you feel like you had any sort of balance between your social life and your work life? I mean, working in this industry, it's hard to find any sort of balance of any sort. And your social life typically is your work life working in hospitality. But for you, what was that transition like moving to the city where I can't imagine you knew a whole lot of people, right? I, I didn't know anyone. When I when I moved here, I I knew no one. Like obviously, I knew Chris because he brought me over. You know your boss. That's yeah. That's about it. The first year that the restaurant was open, basically, I considered that a wash. I was like, I understand what the game is of opening a restaurant. I'm also new here, so I'm just going to sacrifice this first year of my social life because I know what the game is. That's fine. So after that first year, I started to explore a little bit more and Chris and actually everybody in the company has been really good about trying to get me to work less. They're, they're constantly trying to kick me out of the kitchen and say like, Mm -hmm. you should go and do this thing and you should check this out. So I've never had that kind of support in terms of somebody actively and consciously trying to force me to have a social life, which is, it's a new experience, but I, I like it. Yeah. The, the second year was, starting to explore and starting to check stuff out. And then COVID lockdown happened. Mm -hmm. So that kind of put a stop to everything. I know that, you know, y'all were open during a lot of the lockdown doing to goes and things like that. But like, what was your COVID kind of regimen? Did you, were you a sourdough guy, a Tiger King guy? Did you binge the Lord of the Rings movies? Like what was, what was your um, guilty pleasure? What got you through the pandemic or at least the early stage of it? Early stage of it. And it's going to sound terrible, but TikTok. What subset of TikTok did you find yourself going down? Um, it's, it was a lot of, this is me sound so immature, but um, EDM TikTok. For listeners that maybe aren't familiar. Yeah. So like people would play like, videos of stuff they'd recorded and you know obviously there's no concerts it's like oh it's kind of nice to just relive these things (laughs) through that and then it started spiraling into like now i'm on tiktok three hours a day and i'm just like watching people do these dances or these skits and it's kind of great to see the creativity from it actually um steve aoki's pretty popular on tiktok right doesn't he isn't he on the app a lot i think so Uh, but yeah uh it's it's been this weird thing of just it's it's been a nice distraction, honestly. Oh, for and, sure. Um, so, like, did you go to a lot of EDM shows? Like, did you ever go to Ultra down in Miami? Did you do? I can't remember the one that's in Vegas every year. It used that's to be in EDC. Vegas. Yeah, EDC, that's yeah. that's the really big one. Um, it's actually been this kind of very weird thing. Of I used to go to raves and all this these things in high school. But then when I started getting into college and getting busier, and then I went to move to New York to go work, I kind of let all that fall by the wayside. So for the better part of almost a decade, I just kind of fell out of keeping up with new music and going to shows. And You kind of buried the lead a little bit there. I want to go back to high school Nick Wong that's <laughs> sneaking out of the house and going to like rave shows. Do you remember the first one you went to? Yes, it was called Atlantis. It was in the year 2000. It's called Atlantis, and it was uh actually a fairly large one and it was it took place in oakland just beneath the bay bridge so that was like the cool backdrop of it actually it was an outdoor rave yeah yeah um so i actually didn't pass that one i didn't really need to sneak out like my parents knew where i was going and i was open with them about that stuff so it was actually you brought you brought your glow sticks byogs just oh yeah yeah. Oh, yeah. I can I can get down on a pair of glow sticks. Yeah. Um, the other thing during a pandemic that I've found was uh, I started going to spin classes a lot, which is it's tangentially related to the EDM thing because uh, when they started reopening, you go to the same one Justin Yu goes to. Uh, same same franchise, different location. So he goes mm. to the Sawyer Heights one. I go to the Houston Heights one. Okay. Um, my friend AJ was actually the one that got me into it. I'm. I'm not really a, what you would call an athletic person. So <laughs> you work in a me, kitchen. That's pretty athletic. I mean, to be fair, right? Fair. I mean, you're on your feet that's all day. Fair. So when he asked me to go to, to the first one and we went to the Sawyer Heights one, I was like, ah, we'll see. I'll do it. And I kind of got into it. And then everything closed down due to pandemic. And when the Houston Heights one reopened, I started going to that one. I realized being in a dark room with flashing lights and loud music 
blasting at you and you just <laughs> sweating and just trying to stay alive and reminding yourself to drink water. It's like, this seems very familiar to me. So I started doing that more often. And hell yeah, it's actually a really great way for me to, it helped out with stress and it just, you know, staying healthier helped me to pivot and do all these things during pandemic that we've never had to do. Like maybe we're not physically as busy, but the mental strain was something I was not expecting. And it really helped clear my head a lot and just staying healthy. So that way I know that my staff can count on me to be there and be focused and throw down for them to make sure that, you know, they're safe and we can keep the place open and get them money and get them paid. That was the big thing for me. So. Yeah. That's a really stressful thing. I mean, being in that position, like, I mean, that's tough. That, that weighs on your mental real hard. Yeah, for sure. It's been a little bit better recently because obviously it's just been looking more and more positive every week that goes by. It's been a little bit of, uh, it's alleviated my stress a little bit, but I still do the spin class thing because now I'm just... How many days a week you go on a spin? What are we talking? I just go two days a week, the days I'm off, because I don't think I could handle going to <laughs> one in the morning than just working for the next 14 hours on my feet. In my head, I also kind of try to average it out. So I'll do two to three classes a day on the days I'm off. Really? I was like, oh, that'll average out for the, it'll average out for the week. You do three spin classes in a single day? That is twisted, man. That is crazy. That's what, like three, four hours? Like, I don't know how long these classes are. They're 45 minutes. Yeah. Still, that's a lot. Are they like back to back or do you just like take a class, take a breather, go grab a coffee, come back to class? Like, are you switching out tank tops in between or are you just rocking the same one all the way through? I'll try to do back to back in the morning just because it's just, it's more concise and it's like, okay, cool. I got all this done. And then I'll just do one later on the day, change out. Maybe take a nap in between or something like that. But okay, so there's one thing I definitely need to ask you about. I was I was sifting through your background and I came oh, across geez. something that you might be able to explain to me. What's this theater rice? Oh wow. You're like Sean Evans on Hot Ones right now. You're you're really doing the deep dive. I'm doing the deep dive, baby. What is theater rice? What 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 are we talking about here? Uh theater rice is a was an Asian American theater troupe at Berkeley, where I went to college, specifically Asian American, because, you know, representation and everything is not great in Hollywood for Asian Americans. And so also at a college like Berkeley, you have a lot of folks there, super type A, hardened academics, and maybe they're not used to socializing with other people. And maybe some of these fringe folks are like, I don't really know how to fit in. And then there's this theater group specifically for Asian Americans, they go to the one show and it's like, cool to like see yourself up there on the stage. And then, okay, like, well, we have open casting. So why don't you come in and check it out? You know, it's obviously- Did you do any theater in high school? Like, was that, no? Nope, no theater in high school. So how'd you get roped into this? Beyond being Asian, like how did they rope you into this? I went to a show and I had some friends that were in it and they said, why don't you just- kind of come out and see if you want to rehearse or something. We don't, it's not for anything specific. It's not like specifically drama or comedy or whatever. Like, and it's the whole, the whole thing, right? So there's like, there is a sketch comedy. There's an improv troupe. There is uh, a dramatic thing. There's video production. And then there's also tech, like literally learn how to like set up lights and put wires down and set up the AV. Like that's the whole, the whole nine yards. There's a space for everyone there. It, kind of was the one of like the things from college that I kind of carry into my you know working life now the pressure of performing I was in one of the improv troops and learning how to think on your feet is very helpful in a kitchen and like learning the rules of improv like the you know just say yes you always say yes it's never a no learning how to create a flow and kind of go with it has been really great especially during pandemic but yeah, just no, as a cook sure. you know like just and just even just learning you're how to only fail. as good as your last show right isn't that exactly yeah even just learning how to fail in front of folks is is just you you start to lose that fear of the failure and you start to like not necessarily always embrace it but it becomes this normalized thing like okay i didn't really nail it on that take but let's give it a get let's give it another shot you know so it's the same with the podcast i mean we got this one take here and then we're just going to redo the entire thing give it another one and be like all right well we'll split the difference <laughs> that's funny i don't know you were talking a little bit there about like representation within hollywood but even within kitchens right i don't know for you what it's like but you worked for momofuku right in mm-hmm. new york and now you're running ubi preserve 
I mean, do you feel like there is representation in kitchens for Asian Americans with in terms of cuisine? Is there any sort of expectation with like types of cooking? Because I feel like you see you see a lot of like white chefs that think they can make any type of food, right? Or that they do make any type of food. They decide they want to open a Mexican restaurant, they open a Mexican restaurant. They want to yeah. open Asian fusion, they open an Asian fusion. I mean, do you feel like there is that same kind of like ability for Asian American chefs out there? Or is there any sort of like pigeonholing that goes on out there? I think there is still a lot of pigeonholing that kind of still exists, maybe not within the industry, but within the dining public of, you know, who's the forward facing person. If you see me, I've so many times, like even working at Momofuku Sambor, whether it's here and I say like, you know, I work at a restaurant. It's like, oh, do you make sushi or something like that? It's like, not quite. No, I make fajitas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think within the industry, it's very interesting. I feel Asian Americans have a little bit of a better foothold. They have a better foothold in this industry for getting notoriety and that mobility to be seen in front of the dining public now because it's it's popular to, you know, throw some kimchi on something. Everybody knows what kimchi is, yeah. you know. Everyone knows what miso is. They understand what umami kind of tastes like, you know. And it's so like these things are becoming more normalized part of the vernacular of kitchens. And so you also associate the Asian slash Asian Americans doing the sort of thing that they do. I, I will say that it personally, I can't speak for everybody, but I, I've always had some insecurity about being pigeonholed as, you know, you're Chinese American, you cook Chinese food. And the reality of the matter is that I don't know how to cook Chinese food. I didn't grow up cooking Chinese food. My parents, my dad was born in San Francisco. My mom immigrated here from Hong Kong. Neither of them cooked authentic Chinese food. What did they cook growing up? Like, what were they making? My dad, my dad is actually more of a cook than my mom in our family. And he'd make like roast beef and mashed potatoes, spaghetti and meatballs, you know, like a roasted pork loin and yeah, all those stuff. And my mom didn't really cook as much and she did more Chinesey things, but you know, it's, it was not like I had like a grandmother who's, you know, was tugging at her apron strings to learn these recipes. That was not the thing, but my mm -hmm. experience with food growing up was more like I have my taco joint. I have my pho place. I love going to the diner to get burgers with my friends in high school. Like, so it's more of like oh, yeah. a well-rounded thing. But so when people see me as a Chinese American chef and they expect like, Oh, you just cook Chinese food. It's like, I don't know how to cook authentic Chinese food. <laughs> I, I can't speak Chinese. I can't go to those kitchens to learn these things. Yeah. So it's all just kind of trial and error for me, but it's also kind of cool to be able to discover that as an adult and as a professional in this field to start to see what things I can start pulling from my own heritage and my own like ethnic heritage that makes sense for my own training, which my training is French or Western, I guess. And fusing those things together, and it's just kind of this cool thing. Well, and also like this idea that like as a chef, you need to cook what your heritage. There's this idea that like you're gonna cook what you're most passionate about. Like oftentimes, if you're a line cook or you you're coming up in a kitchen, right? You're gonna make what your chef is making, or you're gonna yeah. be inspired by the cooks around you as much as anything else, right? Like, yeah. I don't know. I mean. I represent Armenian wine right now, like, and I am Armenian, but for a long time, the wines that most excited me were like Spanish wines and I'm not Spanish, you know, I think there is this disconnect sometimes where it's like, you need to cook what reflects your heritage, like you were saying, and, and it's yeah. definitely not that. So I, I think one of the coolest things I've ever heard of, or he's this person, his name is Alex Lee. And in, I want to say the late nineties, early two thousands, He's Danielle Boulud's right-hand man, like bar none ran his kitchen, like Danielle with like an iron fist. And he's this big Cantonese dude. I think he's Cantonese <laughs> from right. Jersey or something like that. And he's got, like, yeah. a, he's got an accent, but you know, you got all these other French guys and they're all just like, he's the head chef and they all have to go to him. This Chinese American dude telling this French chef to do the French thing that he can do with his one arm tied behind him. Like that guy is such a badass. And I can't, I can't imagine like, this is also notoriously French kitchens are also very like tough to break into, especially if you're not 
French speaking in the first place. So mm-hmm. that guy, I have the utmost respect for Alex Lee. And he's, he's like one of these unsung heroes. Like if you, if you're in the industry of a certain age, you know who he is, but you don't really see him or know him if you're like in the dining public necessarily, but you know that Alex Lee is the man. Hell yeah. I'm also reminded of like, I know you worked with him, but Tim Maslow, right? And yeah. him going off to like take over his dad's restaurant and incorporating like everything that he learned working within like the Momofuku empire to this like small little like diner joint in Waltham or in Watertown, you know? Yeah. So oh, it's cool to see. Did you ever go to Striptease? Did you ever check out his restaurant? I never got a chance to make it out there. No. Like any good New Yorker never, never made it to Boston. Never. <laughs> yeah. Never deigned that city with your presence. No. Unfortunately, never got a chance to go. Oh, man. Um, well, is there anything else you want to let people know? Um, either about things going on in Houston, um, dishes that you're excited to be cooking, anything else? Um, I don't know if this is uh, necessarily the tone of this podcast, but um, with all the things that have happened recently in the world this last week, um, I know personally it was a tough week for me, but... Um, the kind of positive things I've seen in Houston, specifically two groups, and I'd like to shout them out. One is there's this uh, group called Chowdown in Chinatown. The the Wong brothers from Blood Brothers are part of like the founding members, along with some other folks from you know Bel Air A Leaf that kind of started this thing. And this was pre pandemic when there was a lot of anti Asian, anti Chinese sentiment, and Bel Air restaurants and businesses just ghost towns this is like january 2020 so before we even knew what was going to happen and they created this group to dispel myths and rumors of you know it being unsafe to go there and really using their dollars and their money to patronize these businesses and you you posted a bit about that yeah february 2020 january 2020 i remember you posting things with that hashtag what was it like safe houston chinatown or yeah Things, yeah. yeah, things like that. And so they're, they're a group that's, you know, they've still been active this whole time. And the group has grown to, I want to say, over 10,000 members, maybe. Wow. Um, and they do things like charitable fundraisers, and they'll use that money to go to a restaurant and just buy 30 orders of something. So that way, like, the next customers that come and order it, like, oh, this is on the house. And it's like... That's cool. So this kind of goodwill sort of thing. These restaurants aren't asking for handouts and, you know, they're just like, we're going to buy a bunch of food. This is your, your business. We're going to buy this. So you don't need to feel some sort of way about it. But, you know, we're trying to just keep the mm-hmm. the ecosystem as intact and po- as possible and try to keep on feeding more stuff into it. The other group is actually just two people. <laughs> I think it's just two people. Um, Diane and Willet Feng from Burger Chan. Mm-hmm. Um, Burger Chan closed down uh, permanently in Greenway Plaza due to pandemic and just, just slowdown of business because obviously there are more office workers. Um, but even though they had to close down their restaurant, they've started a new initiative called Food is Love. HTX, I think is the handle on Instagram, or just Food is Love. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of doing the same thing. So their take on it is, you know, hospitality workers have been so impact they've been impacted so harshly during pandemic that it'd be nice if someone else did something for them for a change. And so what they've been doing is they even um, did a Japanese Tamago Sando throwdown with uh, Gabe from Click Virtual Food Hall to raise money. And they're kind of doing the same thing right now. So they're taking that money, going to a restaurant that they want to patronize and give business to, taking buying meals and then taking them to another restaurant, say, hey, family meals on us today. Don't worry about it. And so they actually did that for us this past Friday. And it was really great to see that, especially with last week being as rough as it was, you know, and did you take like a personal day for any of that? Like, what was your what did you do to kind of like, ground yourself? Because I can only imagine how how challenging this has been. Yeah, that was, uh, I don't know, maybe I didn't deal with it in the most healthy way. But I've been kind of abstaining from alcohol pretty well during pandemic just because I know I need to kind of be on top of my game and be focused. But Mm -hmm. this past, I think it was, yeah, I think it was Friday. I was able to get out of the kitchen a little bit early and went with a friend to Anvil and it was nice to see some friendly faces and just had some drinks. And 
that was, I guess that was my way of kind of connecting with other folks, other Asian folks like Tommy. And yeah. Shout out Tommy, the God Xander, you know, all those folks at Anvil and they're always so welcoming and so great. But, uh, it's just been kind of like, you know, you know, it's, you're in the industry and it's like, you just kind of have to process things as it goes. Like, you know, Wednesday I was down a couple of cooks. So I was like, can't really leave. I can't really do anything. So I have to, it is kind of bullshit though. This idea of like, you need to fake it till you make it. You need to leave your baggage at the door. Like you need to just like bottle it in. Like that's not healthy. And it's yeah. an expectation for all of us in our industry is that like, you're going to just be bubbly and friendly and pretend like nothing's wrong. And like theater, right. And you're going to put on, put on a show for these people. Right. I mean, the show must go on. Yeah. I don't know. It's tough. But everybody at the, at the restaurant has been very supportive and, uh, very understanding over the past weekend as well too. So they've been kind of showing their support and, you know, trying to, again, get me out of the restaurant, get me out from working <laughs> when, when they can. So that's been very nice. And it's just knowing that support is there and that connection between people and that someone cares, that has been the biggest thing for me, especially here since I don't have my family here around me. I don't have a lot of friends here. Is your family all still in California? California. Is that where your brother is? Yeah, they're all still in the Bay Area. Have you had a chance to visit them since the pandemic started? Have you had a chance to go back? No, I have not. So the last time I was back home was uh, Christmas 2019. And I I kind of contemplated maybe trying to get home for Thanksgiving or Christmas this last year. But I mean, I'd have to drive. And then even then, it's not a guarantee. Like my my parents are retired and they're Mm. at risk and... I, I can't, it's not worth the risk to, yeah. to go home and potentially expose it. But hopefully this year I will be able to make it out. You know, once vaccinations are. Finished. Once you get that Fauci ouchie, you're good to go. I'm, I'm getting my second one on Thursday. So oh, for, are you um Moderna hive or are you a uh, Pfizer posse? Uh, Moderna gang. Uh, you and me both brother. We got this. <laughs> yeah. Moderna gang. Stand up. I love it. Cool, man. Well, Nick, thank you so much. If people want to learn more about either what you're doing at UV Preserve or those two organizations, um, where can people find you on either TikTok or Instagram? Don't find me on TikTok. Let's uh, find you on TikTok. Yeah. Let's go down a rabbit hole of EDM. Let's oh, do it. Um, you can find me on Instagram at underscore Nick Wong underscore. Yeah. Um, the... Chowdown in Chinatown group, I believe is Chowdown Chinatown. All right. And uh, Willet and Diane's group is Food is Love HTX, I believe. And uh, I'll put them in the show notes free, too. Yeah. I'll put them in the show notes so people can find it too. So. Yeah. Hell yeah, dog. Well, thank Gotta you so much, done. man. This is great. Thank Thanks you. for having me on. That is our show. Thank you so much for listening. You can stream by the glass every episode I've ever recorded of this show. You can find it on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, Audible, all of the places you stream your audio content. So please smash that subscribe button. Like it. Tell your friends about it. Tell your aunts, uncles, grandmas, cousins, anybody you know. Shout from the rooftops. Tell them about how great this show is. We're coming up on our one-year anniversary next month. I mean, by the time you listen to this, it'll probably be like really close to the end of the month. So who knows? Maybe you're listening to it in April. Anyways, this show launched on April 15th of 2020. That was a very uncertain time for me. And I was excited to create this show. And those of you that have been here for the long haul, I appreciate it. And those of you that have joined the show, go back and listen to those early episodes. And everyone out there, go smash that five-star button on whatever streaming platform you use so that more people can find out about the show. And I'll talk to you soon.